It's always a great pleasure to introduce someone who needs no introduction. So, <laughs> um, I'm very grateful to Pastor John Piper for agreeing to to come here and speak speak to you all. Um, John was the pastor for many fruitful years at Bethlehem in uh, Minneapolis and is now spending a year in Tennessee and then will return. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, and then will return to Minneapolis to serve as the Chancellor of Bethlehem. Um, Let's see, Bethlehem College and Seminary, BCS, BCS and, um, and also to continue to serve with Desiring God. Many of you know him uh, through his books. They've been very influential in your lives as they have been in mine. And so it's a very great pleasure to welcome John Piper. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray now that as we press on with this issue of words, that you would continue to forge in our minds truth concerning this whole issue of how our part in crafting languages, language, sentences, paragraphs are essential, our part is essential, and yet you are decisive. Oh, that we might think rightly about this, and I just dread the thought, Lord, of, of producing artsy pastors. And yet, oh God, I cannot escape what I see in the scriptures and what I see in my experience concerning the importance of the choice of words and how we choose those words and how that relates to seeing you and savoring you and showing you. So come and be at work now in, in my heart, my mind, and these brothers' hearts and minds so that they walk away from this particular aspect of the, of the weekend with a sense of coherence about their role in crafting language and, and your decisive role in doing all the eternal work of our message. So I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So you can feel how, how with Doug I am in wrestling with these things. It seems like the last couple of days have been this, namely the whole issue of mediation, um, how we know God, how we speak of him, and how his work happens in our people's lives through our language and whether our language makes a difference in that. So that's, that's a cluster of issues that we're dealing with. And this is a, an adaptation of a message I gave a year or so ago on uh, George Herbert and his poetry as an example of what a pastor does with language, because Herbert was a pastor for the last four years of his, his life. So some of this will clearly overlap and parallel what Doug has talked about already this morning, and, and then I'm going to make my main point a, almost a, a converse of what, what he said, not only that 
our language choices in preaching affects what people see of God and experience of God, but that our effort to make those choices is a way of seeing and knowing God. That, that, that's been the surprising discovery for me in the last several years, is as I have labored to find language that I think will help my people go deeper with God, I have gone deeper with God. So that's what I've been thinking about mainly in this particular message. So I hope saying that, giving illustrations, using Herbert as the model will, will help you be heartened that you don't just labor on a Friday or a Thursday or a Saturday for the sake of your people's souls when you try to find the right word, you labor for your own soul. Okay, so that's where we're, we're going. We pastors are people who do our work by words. And I can probably deal with this quickly because it's been said, surgeons, carpenters, truck drivers, could do very good work without talking. You can take the cancer out, total healing, never say a word. And drive a truck from here to there, under the speed limit, on time, fresh food, in the store, silent, all the way. Build a house, never open your mouth. We can't. Our life is our language. This is what we do. We talk. We talk in counseling, and we talk in pulpits, and that's our life. If we shut our mouths, we're done. So it's just huge. You can't overestimate the essential nature of language for the preacher, pastor, because if language goes away, we go away. Our work goes away. The Bible makes it really clear this is God's idea, right? All the important things you want to happen in your people's lives happen because of words. And I'll give you an illustration. The new birth, 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again through the living and abiding word. Born again through the living and abiding word. People don't get born again without words. Or saving faith. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Nobody has faith if they haven't heard words. Edification. Ephesians 4, 29. We heard this morning. Let only speech come out of your mouth as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear for upbuilding. Nobody is edified without words. Love, purity, purity of heart, good conscience, they all come from words. The aim of our charge is love, from a good conscience and sincere faith. Joy in Christ, John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. Isn't that amazing? Joy is such, a, such an other thing than words, and yet no joy without them. 
That's the way Jesus was going to get it done. I speak for my joy to go from me into you. Words. We saw that, that wisdom, lips, ears, heart. We just saw that so clearly. Here it is again. Or freedom from sin. John 8, 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free from sin or sanctification. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your words are truth. Or salvation. Keep a close watch on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you'll save yourself and your hearers. I mean, these are just staggering sentences, aren't they? Everything we want to happen in the hearts of our people happens through words. It's just mind-boggling. It's, it's why I presume Doug is on to this in this, in this seminar and, and why I've been on to it, and no doubt you have given lots of thought to that. Now, here's the catch. All those things I just listed that only happen through words won't happen through words, except that God comes down. And now I'll give you text for that, because this is just remarkable how the Bible does this. God made people alive who were dead and were saved and raised up through words. So new birth, according to Ephesians 2.5, is that God made people alive. So they're born again through the living body word, but God makes people alive. So do you do it or do they do it? Well, God does it decisively, and he won't do it without words. Or the grace of God uh, in having faith. This is not their own doing. This faith is not their own doing. It is the gift of God. So faith comes through words, and but it only comes through God or holiness. God working in them that which is pleasing in his sight. And, and on. I'm, I'm not going to, you know this. So here we are. All those glorious, eternal, spiritual things that we exist to bring about, we must be agents in bringing about through words, and none of them happen if God Almighty doesn't reach down and do that decisive work. I have found that word decisive theologically utterly crucial as I pick adjectives to describe the causality of God. The difference between my agency and God's agency, I find very helpfully described by saying, I am not decisive. God is. The absolute final make it happen flashpoint issue on my piling wood on the fire is God's decisive flame. So that's been absolutely crucial for me, and that word has been very, very useful over these past years that I've been working on this. So we are about a supernatural work that only God can do, and we are called upon to do it and be crucial, essential agents. Doug's phrase was what? Necessary, not sufficient. Essential, not sufficient is what, what we are. So the way I use words does make a difference, it seems, or does it? I mean, so which, which words I choose, does that make a difference in whether those spiritual things happen or would any words do? 
evidently, if you look at, the, look at the Bible, content makes a difference in your words, clarity makes a difference in your words, uh, the spirit and attitude makes a difference. For example, uh, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. We proclaim, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. So I conclude from those three texts that the content of your words makes a difference in whether God's decisive work is going to happen. If you leave out things that ought to be in the words, he's, he's staying back. He's not going to bless and prosper a set of words that leave out essential truths. So I know content makes a difference. So here's another thing that makes a difference. Clarity. This is Colossians 4.3. Pray for us that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So evidently, Paul asks that they would pray so that he's not muddled when he talks about the gospel. And people get all confused. They don't know really what he's talking about. And God doesn't move because they don't have the, the, the clear picture of what they're supposed to believe because I've muddled it. There's a little parenthesis here. I read a tweet the other day that somebody said such and such an article by, I won't even use the names here, uh, his review of N.T. Wright's new book was so helpful. I said, oh, I want to read a helpful review of the new giant 1,100-page book. <laughs> so I went over there, and I read it, and I thought, why does he think this is helpful? It's confusing. It's hazy. It's squishy. It's, what is it? I don't even know what he's saying. And I, I just, my heart sinks when I read pastors and scholars who call helpful what's mushy and unclear and dodgy and you don't know what they're saying. And I just think Paul is just so anti that. And he, he prayed, oh God, make me clear, just crystal clear. I just love it to be around people who are clear. They, they, they know denials and affirmations, not just squishy affirmations. You wonder, what do they really believe after they make those three squishy affirmations? Because they never use any denials over here. So content and clarity make a difference. And a third one is um, the spirit and the attitude of your delivery. Paul prayed like this, or pleads for prayer that words may be given me in the opening of my, my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery. Why would he pray for that? Well, evidently, it matters. Evidently, a, a bold, clear, truth-laden word is blessed. It's blessed by God, and a, and a wimpy, cautious, hesitant, unclear, mushy word, it'll attract a lot of certain personality types, but it won't do the job. So now, here's where we are so far. Our word is essential. God is decisive. 
in bringing about those glorious things we want, if you ask, do our words really count? Does, does one kind of word and another kind of word help or not help for the divine agency to take place, uh, I've answered content, clarity, and certain attitudes like boldness seem to make a difference. And my question is, anything else? Like, anything else make a difference too? Certain kinds of, like short sentences are better than long sentences? Help God show up? You're going to hear about metaphor? Um, that's what I've been thinking about. And uh, George Herbert's a poet. And I thought, why, why, would, why would he do that? Why would a pastor, George Herbert, be a poet? Um, so I'm going to use Herbert as an, an illustration of investigating whether poetic effort, that's my term, poetic effort makes a difference in the effectiveness, the spiritual, eternal effectiveness, not just clever impact with no eternal, uh, no eternal impact, but really spiritual effect. Does poetic effort make a difference? And by poetic effort, I don't mean writing poetry. I don't think God calls pastors to write poetry. You might. But I think he does call every pastor, I'm going to argue, to make poetic effort, which means an effort to find the right word. You know what Twain said, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and the lightning bug. <laughs> and and uh, is it? Is it? I mean, is there a word fitly spoken that God is more likely to move through than a poorly chosen word? That's a scary question to me. Because I know if I answer yes to that question, I'm about to make esthetes out of you. People who are just, you're in it for the language game. Wordsmithy is your trade and you want to be good at it. And... And God and the Holy Spirit just start to drift away. So I'm, I'm very cautious in my own heart. And frankly, I don't think I have all the answers to this. I, I've, te I've taught preaching to a band of about 12 guys a year for the last 11 or 12 years. And I never feel complete satisfaction with the way I've tried to help them. A couple of them are sitting over here and I, I just... I want them to make an effort to say it well, and I want them to believe it doesn't really matter. That God can make Balaam's ass very effective. I, I don't want the unschooled, non-poetic, ministering mainly to blue-collar folks, I don't want that man to walk away from this message and say, Yes, you have to be kind of a artsy, poetic, college-educated, George Herbert-loving kind of guy in order to have an effective ministry. You just know that's not what Doug thinks. That's not what I think. So I should sit down right now. And <laughs> <laughs> I finished this message. Okay, a little caution. 
Hosea 12.10 goes like this. I have also spoken by the prophets, it's God talking, and I have multiplied visions and I have used similitudes. In other words, God himself claims to use metaphor, simile, symbol, parable, to have inspired writers to search out words that point to reality in indirect ways. I have in my iPad over there um, a software program set up, I mean just a little simple Bible reading program, and you can tell it to make uh, highlights in different colors, and you can either use straight through or underline, and I set one up to be a green underline for every place that metaphor or simile is used. Anything where the Bible is talking one thing in terms of another thing, a like or an as or just sh her love is a rose, that kind of thing. And uh, there's a lot of There's a lot of Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them in the prophets and the, and the Proverbs and the Psalms and... and why is that? If you ask how much of the Old Testament is poetry, Leland Riken uh, has a, an article called I Have Used Similitudes based on Hosea 12.10 in which he says this, given the combined presence of parallelism and a heavy reliance on figurative language, how much of the Bible ranks as poetry? One third of the Bible is not too high an estimate. Whole books of the Bible are poetic, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. A majority of the Old Testament prophecy is poetic in form. Jesus is one of the most famous poets of the world. Beyond these predominantly poetic parts of the Bible, figurative language appears throughout the Bible, and whenever it does, it requires the same type of analysis given to poetry. So, pastors are people who do their work with words, and if we don't use words, we don't do our ministry, and God uses words that seem to be chosen with some effort. I mean, here's, here's what struck me. I, I wrote an article for our denominational magazine 25 years ago uh, called... Um, get these mixed up. I forget the title. The, the point was to make an, um, known that making an effort to say something in a form, which takes away a lot of your freedom, like a, a rhyming form or a metrical form or an acrostic form, limits you. And my argument was, uh, like the banks of a river that squishes in so that the water doesn't spread all over the plain, it pushes it in and makes it go deep, okay? So as, as banks become defined and narrow, the water that was spreading all over the place an inch deep is now driving its way down into the ravine and, and the river is running deep. And then I used the Book of Lamentations. And, and you're aware that Lamentations is um, in every chapter except one, 
an acrostic with the different paragraphs beginning with different letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And the middle, it's got five chapters, and the middle one is the most severe acrostic, where not only do the paragraphs, but every unit in the paragraph have a different letter. And here's the striking thing. Lamentations is the most emotional book in the Bible. Right, isn't it? It's horrible. Women are eating their children in Lamentations. And this writer chooses to speak about this massive horror of Jerusalem's destruction and the emotional torment of it in acrostics. And you just, I, I just I shake my head and say, that's the opposite of our impulse, it seems like. The more emotional we want to be and express the fewer restraints we want on our emotions. I want to just be free and let it out and talk and I'm crying. Don't tell me to cry within limits. What, what is that? I mean, that's really worth thinking about. What is Lamentations doing? The most formal book in the Bible, without doubt, and the most emotional. So, um, how God chose to inspire the Bible has a big effect on how I think about my use of language. I'm supposed to plant and water, and God gives the growth, so there's the, the essential and decisive but how I plant and how I water makes a difference. Doug said that God is ordinarily pleased to give the greatest harvest to the most industrious farmer. If part of that industry is how he cuts the rows of his language, then be good to, to think about that, which is what I want to do with, with George Herbert. So let me just, I'm not going to give his biography here. That's the part I'm just going to leave out of this message I, from, from, from a year ago. Uh, and because that's, I didn't come here mainly to introduce you to George Herbert, but to talk about this issue with Herbert as being illustrative. But it would be good to just say a word because not everybody knows George Herbert. By the way, a, a brand new book is just published this year by a British publisher called Music at Midnight. The, the life and poetry of George Herbert. And I was going to check on, on, on Amazon to see who the author was. I forget. But I have the book. I've read about 40 pages of it. But that's probably, where, that's probably going to be a go-to book for, for a long time. It's a thick book, a brand-new serious study of, of George Herbert's life and poetry. And so it's called Music at Midnight. You can, you can find it. Um, Herbert was born in 1593 and died just short of his 40th birthday. Married, no kids, uh, adopted three nieces, was the orator, public orator of Cambridge University, which meant anytime anybody important showed up, he was assigned to give a speech and be the appropriate word guy. So clearly he was as a word orientation all his life. As a teenager, he wrote, he wrote, poems, 
or his mother, his, for his mother, his, his mother was a good friend of John Donne, very famous poet, and he's clearly influenced by Donne in his structural language. But Donne was, uh, had a ribald period in his life. Herbert never did. One of the most remarkable things about Herbert's poetry is that he said to his mother as a young student at Cambridge that he intended to devote all of his poetic effort to God, and he never, to our knowledge, wrote a poem in English to anyone but God. The only reason has anybody has ever heard of George Herbert is because of something that happened in the last two or three weeks of his life as he was dying. He had a good friend named Nicholas Farrar, whom he trusted deeply. And Nicholas Farrar sent, he couldn't go when Herbert asked him to come, so he sent a friend named Duncan, uh, Edmund Duncan, and to, to attend to the dying Herbert. And George Herbert uh, went to his cabinet and he pulled out a, a packet. And in the packet were 167 poems, never, ever having been published, written for himself and no doubt often read to friends and, and his church. And here's what he said to Duncan as he said, please give this to Nicholas Farrar. Sir, I pray deliver this little book to my dear brother Farrar and tell him he shall find in it a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed between God and my soul. Before I could subject mine to the will of Jesus, my master, in whose service I have now found perfect freedom. Desire him to read it, and then, if he can think it may turn to to the advantage of any poor dejected soul, let it be made public. If not, let him burn it, for I and it are less than the least of God's mercies. 167 poems that have established George Herbert as one of the greatest poetic craftsmen in English language, ranking there with Dunn and the other metaphysical poets, never having been published in the English language, and him handing them over saying, if they could be of use, use to some poor, dejected soul who might have walked through some of the same things I've walked through, then go ahead and publish them. But if not, burn them. And those 167 poems were published under the title The Temple. The poems, they think, were arranged in a certain way by Herbert, you can't prove that entirely whether Nicholas Farrar arranged them or whether he had already arranged them, but I think the arrangement of those 167 poems in the temple of this unit probably was the work of George Herbert himself. And many people, very famous people, have attributed powerful impacts in their life to George Herbert, one of them being... Um, Coleridge, the famous poet who was an opium addict and found tremendous power.
power in his own deliverance through Herbert's poetry. And here's just an interesting thing, and you can't get this book. It's not available. I had to write to Gene Edward Veith. So a lot of you know who that is, Gene Edward Veith. But most of you don't know that Veith did his doctoral work, I think at St. Louis University or somewhere in St. Louis, and his doctoral dissertation in English was on the poetry of George Herbert. And the title of his dissertation, which he published, but which is out of print, and he sent me a PDF of it so I could use it, uh, is called Reformed Spirituality in the Work of George Herbert. And his thesis is that one of the reasons Herbert's craft had the effect it had on the likes of Simone Weil and uh, Coleridge is because of a depth of its reformed theology. Over against John Donne, who never found assurance because of his different theological commitments. It's a really remarkable study, if you can get a, get a hold of it. But just to give you a flavor of how Herbert expressed his deep commitments to the sovereignty of God, just here's a, a four-line excerpt. We all acknowledge both thy power and love to be exact, transcendent, and divine, who dost so strongly and so sweetly move while all things have their will, yet none but thine. All things have their will, yet none but thine. So here's, here's a poet writing at the beginning of the 17th century with deep commitments to, um, he's an Anglican, he's a high churchman, and he's reformed in his soteriology and his thinking through and through. Part of the early um, Protestants that C.S. Lewis said their problem was that they were all too happy, um, and that's why they got booted out of the church, not that they were all too stodgy. He was, Herbert was, the consummate craftsman, which is why he's relevant for this particular talk. So from his Anglican Reformed spiritual heritage, Herbert has nurtured wounded souls with extraordinary craft. I would say probably unparalleled. One of the marks of that is that of the 167, see, I'm, I don't know where I wrote this down, but I, I'll ballpark it. Of the 167 poems in the temple, I think the number is 116 that are unique in structure. Meaning, he's got poems that by their rhyme scheme, their metrical order, their indentation design are never repeated, 116 of them. So the kind of effort, this is what I mean by poetic effort, the kind of effort that was going into the structuring of these poems was extraordinary. And it, it puts him up there in the top rank of poetic craft. There's a lot of deep and profound poets 
who use traditional forms, there are not many who create 116 new forms to fit what they're saying at that particular moment. So he loved crafting language in new and powerful ways. And my point here is that it was for him a way of seeing and savoring and showing, three S's, seeing what he's talking about, savoring it, and showing it. I'm arguing his effort to find those perfect words in that perfect form with that perfect cadence opened his eyes to glory. That's my point. One can only imagine um, that his sermons, we don't have any sermons extant of George Herbert, not one. We have his little book called The Country Parson where he wrote about being a pastor, but we don't have any of his sermons and we can only imagine that they would have been rich because John Donne, we do have his sermons and they are rich. However, I think Herbert's would have been different. You read the sermons of John Donne and you feel like these are pieces of art like his poetry. I wonder if Herbert preached like that in his country, country, uh, little country church of Bemerton. You know, one of the interesting things you can do nowadays is go to Google or um, Google Earth and put in uh, Old Church Bemerton, something like that in England, and it will land you beside the church on the road. You can walk around the church. You just, and then goes, and you can walk into the garden. You see the very church in which he spoke. And the impression you get when you do that is, that's small. <laughs> it didn't seat more than 100 people ever. This is a man who's known around the world now as a poet, and he preached faithfully for four years to less than 100 people. And he loved them, and he cared for them. He writes about what it is to minister, minister to them. He could not conceive of a formless poem. He wouldn't have known what to make a free verse in our day. The poet's duty was to perceive and communicate the beauty of God. And in the process, he would construct out of the chaos of experience and the mass of language, he would construct an object which would reflect the beauty of the subject that he's talking about. So he writes, true beauty dwells on high. Ours is the flame but borrowed, thence to light us thither. Beauty and beauteous words should go together. Beauty and beauteous words should go together. He felt like if you saw something, about God, about Christ, about the world that was glorious. There should be some correspondence between the words you choose and the way you say them to that. Some correspondence to it, which virtually, it seems to me, very few young pastors, at least of the hip variety, they don't believe that. 
Herbert used poetry, chose to be, make a poetic effort because he was aiming at the glory of God, not technique for technique's sake. When he was 17, he wrote two sonnets for his mother, and then he sent them to her with a vow. And a vow was that all of his poetry would be devoted to the glory of God. He said that he lamented the vanity of those many who love poems that are daily writ and consecrated to Venus. So love poetry for others than God. And that, quote, so few are writ that look toward God and heaven. And then came his vow, quote, that my poor abilities in poetry shall be all and ever consecrated to God's glory. And he, and he kept that vow because not a single lyric in the temple of these 167 poems is addressed to a human being or written in honor of one. All of them are written to God and about God, and they're written with consummate skill to correspond to what he was seeing about God. Helen Wilcox, that's the second book I'd re recommend very highly. If you want a collection of his poems, you'd have to pay 30 bucks for this on Amazon for paperback, but there are difficult places in his poetry. Helen Wilcox is highly sympathetic, both to his theology and his style, and in her thick book, she explains everything. So you have the poems, and you have all her footnotes that explain all the historical, contextual, grammatical, allusional aspects of the poetry. So if you want a solid thing to just go back to again and again, it'll help you with the difficult places. Helen Wilcox, I think it's called The English Poems of George Herbert. Um, how should I praise thee, Lord? How should my rhymes gladly engrave thy love in steel? If what my soul doth feel sometimes, my soul might ever feel. So he wants to take the glory of God and engrave it with his language, engrave it in steel with what he feels. He wants, he wants to capture as in engraven steel what he's feeling inside. That's what poetry was for him. It was an effort to find words that would be solid as steel and capture what he felt in his soul. And that just rings so right to me for what preaching is. It doesn't have to rhyme, it doesn't have to have metrical uh, perfection to it, but steel truth graven with the pen of your mind and capturing what affections there are that are appropriate to that to that truth. Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in anything to do it as for thee. This is the famous stone that turneth all to gold, for that which God doth touch and own cannot for less be told. So Herbert believed that God ruled all things by his sacred providence and that everything spoke of God. God had put man, I have on my, uh, before I finish the sentence, I, ha I have my monitor, my what, big Mac Thunderbolt or whatever it's called, sitting on my desk. 
and a little typed piece of paper um, taped to the top with this phrase on it because it was the one probably that moved me as much as any as I've been reading his poetry over the last couple of years, um, namely, Secretary of God's Praise. It goes like this. O sacred providence, who from end to end strongly and sweetly movest, shall I write and not of thee, through whom my fingers bend to hold my quill? Shall they not do thee right? Of all the creatures, both in sea and land, only to man thou hast made known thy ways and put the pen alone into his hand and made him secretary of thy praise. Only to man, not to monkeys, not to dolphins, who praise the Lord all indirectly, but not with a pen in their hand. He has put the pen into our hand and made us the secretary of his praise. I put that right at the top. I am a secretary of the praise of God. That's my job on the planet. I want to so write every tweet, every blog, every book, every sermon, every message. I am a secretary of the praise of God. I want what I write to awaken praise of God. That's what I want my life to count for. And I think that's what, that's what he was saying language is for. It's what you should do with your, with your language. He mourns the diminishing ability that he had to praise brimful. Why do I languish thus, drooping and dull, as if I were all earth? Oh, give me quickness that I may with mirth praise thee brimful. So his poems were these struggles where he was expressing his own fading power. He had leukemia. No, tuberculosis. He died of tuberculosis. And it came on him in waves in the last four years of his life. He'd lose his ability to think clearly. And he wrote poems about moaning. I'm losing it. I'm losing it. I can't think as clearly. I can't feel. I can't find the words anymore. And it was such a grief to him. And then it would return. And it would rise up again. And he'd celebrate with life as he wrote again. What a good thing. So he writes in, in the poem called The Flower. And now in age, in age, he died at 39. And now in age, I bud again. After so many deaths, I live and write and once more smell the dew and rain and relish versing. Oh, my only light, it must, it cannot be that I am he on whom thy tempest fell all night. So the re recovery after all those tempests all night long of the weeks and months that had been languishing, it returned again, and he loved again to be a, a verser, as, as he called it. I live to show his power who once did bring my joys to weep, and now <coughs> my griefs to sing. So writing poetry for Herbert, making the poetic, poetic effort, um, was not merely recording his experiences so that others then could share in his experiences. That is what preaching is. Authentic preaching, you've met God, you see God, you know God, 
going to find some words, going to speak that sight of God in the text, that experience of God in the text, and speak it so that it can land, go down. And I'm saying, that's not all that's going on here. The writing, I'm arguing, this is my main point, the writing is part of the experience of God. Before anybody else hears it, these 167 poems were not published in his lifetime. He, he, he's not like me. If I write a poem and I like it, I put it on my blog. <laughs> like, like, Herbert didn't do that. Why don't you save them up in a bag? Well, I don't think the bag would survive. That's why I've got a blog and put it out there. He found writing it itself was awesome. Here's, here's key, a key phrase, a verse. God... A verse is not a crown. By verse, he means a verse in my poetry. A verse is not a crown, no point of honor or gay wit, no hawk or banquet or renown, nor a good sword, nor yet a lute. I cannot vault, it cannot vault or dance or play. It never was in France or Spain, nor can it entertain the day with a great stable or domain. It is no office, art, or news, nor the exchange, or busy hall, but it is that which, while I use, I am with thee. Now, when I saw that, my verses are that which, while I use, I am with thee. Joseph Summers, one of the commentators on his poetry, said, the writing of a verse gave to Herbert the quiddity of, that's the name of the poem in which that's found, the quiddity, the thisness, the essence, the quiddity of spiritual experience. Let's say that again. The writing of a verse gave to Herbert the quiddity of the spiritual experience he was writing about. Now, how, how widespread is that, I, I asked. Should I commend that to you, not with poems like, let's all go home and become a Herbert-like poet. Nope, I'm not going to do that. That would be clearly over the top. But is there a principle here that laboring to find fitting language for darkness on Good Friday? How are you going to say that again? The glories of the resurrection, the appearance to Mary, the ascension through clouds, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You, to, you are men who are called to speak those glories. Is it not true that sitting for a half an hour with a pen in hand over a blank half sheet of paper saying, God, I need to see this fresh. I need to feel these glories fresh. Would you help me find language? And my point is, the effort to find the words takes you into the experience. That's what I'm arguing for. His poems are that which while I use, I am with thee. Therefore, 
With my utmost art I will sing thee, and the cream of all my heart I will bring thee. Now, that doesn't mean he wasn't writing for the good of the church. When I argue he was writing because while he wrote, he was with God. Writing was an experience with God. Writing was a revelation of God. Writing was taking him deeper into the thing he's writing about. When I say that, I don't mean he was indifferent to being edifying to the church. He, he wasn't. You remember what he said, if these could be of use to any poor dejected soul, Nicholas, then make them known. If not, burn them up. I didn't write them just for me. If they can be used of others, then let them so be used. Hearken unto a verser who may chance rhyme thee to good and make a bait of pleasure. A verse may find him who a sermon flies and turn delight into a sacrifice. I may rhyme thee to good. Now, can I, can I just stretch that into a principle and say, if, you, if he says it might be that I could make a bait out of verbal pleasure, this is pleasing to the ear, and that pleasure is a bait for the truth. If I can do that and rhyme thee to good, could it be that you're devoting 15 minutes to a sentence, a closing sentence, or a beginning sentence, or a middle sentence? 15 minutes, not 15 seconds, to a sentence, that might happen? That that sentence would be so good it wouldn't sound like it was artifice. Great musicians sound effortless because they weren't. Fifteen minutes over a sentence might move you from five minutes of carelessness to ten minutes of artificial artifice to fifteen minutes of clear, it's coming out natural, it's coming out deep, it's coming out strong, it's coming out pleasing, and people are going to be affected by it in a holy way because I've given holy attention to it. Maybe. I think that would be implicit here in him saying, oh, may I rhyme thee to good and make a bait of pleasure. A verse may find him whom a sermon flies and turn delight into a sacrifice. And that is, in fact, what has happened over the years. Uh, Simone Weil, the French philosopher, was totally agnostic toward God until he read Herbert's poem, Love, number three, and said, uh, after confessing Christ, um, this poem is the most beautiful poem in the world. So he had deep reformed spirituality, proven theology of grace, centered on the cross and redemption, uh, deep conflicts of soul that were being put into words, striving to find the utmost art for the cream of all of his art, and thus saying beautifully what he saw and seeing what he, what he said. So, in closing, 
I'm asking the question, mainly for myself and for you, I hope, how do you meditate on the glories of God in the Bible? How do you growl over them? What's that mean? I mean, growl, what, 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 is, what is that? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put something onto growl because I, I like that. Luther said, I hammered on the text. I beat on it. I beat on, on Romans 1.16 until it opened to me. And I walked through paradise into justification by faith alone. What was that? What would he mean he beat on it? He growled over it. And I'm simply saying one meaning of that is look until you cannot, until you find language appropriate to it. Language you've never used before in this way. It's just a little tip. It's just a little tip of how you meditate on God. Because I think a lot of guys, they hear say, meditate on the word of God. Meditate on the word of God. They don't know what to do. <laughs> they, they, they open a commentary, which is nothing is more deadening to your own imaginative soul than to quickly run to an academic commentary. It's just deadening. But if you, will, if you will pray, oh, God, please, now for the next, next half hours, I try to figure out this word, this word of hallow, in hallowed be the name. I just want to understand hallow. Please come. And then you know it's hagiadzo, and that means sanctify. Okay, that's enough. I don't need any more of that stuff. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean to hallow God, your name? And you start writing down ideas, you plead, you think, not that, yeah, that maybe, maybe that, and, and, and it, comes, it starts to come, words come, and you find yourself thinking thoughts you never had before because you're looking for something to write down here that for your people just might awaken them from that old, crusty, hallowed be thy name into just vibrant, oh, that's it. It's a penetration into the reality of what it means to hallow the name of God. Um, Herbert, uh, for him, the poetic effort was a form of meditation on the glories of Christ mediated through the scriptures. Conceiving and writing poems was his way of holding the glimpse of Christ in his mind, turning it around and around and around like the diamond until it yielded and open some of its essence to him. Now let me give you a um, closing concrete illustration. My daughter's 18th birthday was on the 11th. So today is what, 7, 18, something? A week ago. Now I've always written my kids poems for their birthday. They don't give much, they don't like, I mean they don't care much. Uh, they're not the most appreciative audience in the world. <laughs> But I know what happens to me when I write them. And so maybe, maybe someday they'll like them. Um, so she turned 18, and I thought, Lord, what, what could I do that would express to her some of my affections for her? And uh, so now that's, that question right there is the standard question for poetry. Here's the next one. 
And in writing it, I would see her like I've never seen her, feel her like I've never felt her, enjoy her like I've never enjoyed her because of making the effort to say to her what I feel about her. See what I'm saying? That's the difference. So I tried to imitate. Now, this is, you can feel this ludicrous, like a little, little kid trying to imitate you know, Babe Ruth or something as a, a ball player, what, 50 years ago. Um, so I tried to imitate Herbert's poem, Prayer. I might, I might read it to you. I'm supposed to be done here now, I think. Um, so let me wrap this up quick. But I'm going to read you this poem that I wrote to show you. This took me about an hour and a half, two hours to write, which is pretty quick. Um, I mean, I have to live my life, right? Do what you can. So it's called My Daughter Singing in Her Room. So I just decided I would pick one little sliver of something I love. Namely, I can overhear my daughter sometimes singing in her bedroom worship songs, and I could just die and go to heaven, right? <laughs> An 18-year-old daughter singing worship songs by herself in her bedroom, and I just wanted to massage that for an hour and a half. This is what I call meditation. I am meditating on that fact. My daughter is singing in her bedroom. What do you have to say about that, Piper? And you could, you could, I could put that in a birthday card in five minutes. Love to hear your singing. You mean a lot to me. Thanks, sweetie, for being my daughter. Love, Daddy. Uh, happy birthday. What? 30 seconds. Or I could do this. So I, I wrote, my daughter singing in her room, heaven's soft resonance and lure, hell's sulking forfeiture, faith's fruit long-tended sweet, hope's hazarded leap complete, heart's pleasant aching fullness, love's food, love's palates, yes, ears leaning, pleasuring, eyes glistening, moistening, lips artless smile restored, hands stillness in reward, skin shiver audible caressing, souls soft possessing, burdens calm, serenity's friend, poor father's fears end, God's echo, heaven's verses, Calvary's purchase, time's ripening, swift, 18 years gift. Amen. Took me about an hour and a half to do that. And all they are is phrases, right? That rhyme. They rhyme in couplets. I paid no attention to meter. Didn't have time. So I just sacrificed that one, threw it away. And, and I just wanted, to, just wanted to rhyme the couplets, chose to do that, arbitrary choice, and then find, you know, 18 or 20 words. Now I read it to her at Applebee's. Over, over the loud music that was roaring in the background. <laughs> so I, I'm done. Just let me let me state the main point again: the poetic effort to say, and 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 I don't mean write poetry. I mean finding sermonic words. The effort to say beautifully is a way of seeing beauty. The effort to find worthy words for Christ opens us more fully to the worth of Christ and the experience of the worth of Christ. As Herbert says, 
It is that which while I use, I am with thee. So Father, don't let anyone walk out of here feeling, Piper said we all have to write poems. It's not what I said. Grant that inasmuch as the effort to find suitable words shaped by the scripture, bounded by the scriptures, inspired and, and pressed forward by the words of scriptures, in so much as that would help us see you, know you, savor you, and all the glories like a daughter singing, grant, I pray, that these brothers would, would go to work on that and enjoy you because of it and their people benefit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.